All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for hanging out. How's everything going with you? How's the drive going? How's the running going? How's your biking experience? How's the subway? What's going on on the bus? Where are you at? How are you doing out there with the yard work? Good to have you. Welcome. Welcome. Be careful with that tool. Please be careful with that knife. Please be careful with that scalding water. All right, pay attention. Pay attention. Hey, don't forget your kids upstairs. All right. I just wanted to expand the greetings a bit. Uh, today is a it's a pretty packed show, really. A couple of, uh, of film directors, one uh, a musician and film director, the other a comedian and film director, both engaging conversations. Bobcat Goldthwaite uh, stopped by for a short conversation that always turns into a a longer conversation with me because that's just my nature, I guess, with some people. He's got uh, Misfits and Monsters premiering this Wednesday on True TV, July 11th. Sounds interesting, but it was good to see Bobby because we we had, we had not talked about the passing of our friend Barry Crimmins and uh, and and just that experience. And it got it got a little heavy, but grief is part of life, and being there for somebody in that time is. Uh, is uh, it's an honor in a way. Uh, it sounds like a, a tremendous uh, burden and and sad undertaking, but I, I think it's an honor. I think we're built to uh, to handle that stuff, and 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 we're supposed to be there for that. I, I really think that. But I but look, I don't want to get morbid or or uh, dark. It was a great conversation. So Bobcat's on. The longer talk would be uh, coming up after that with Boots Riley. The, uh, the rapper, uh, you might know him from The Coup, but uh, he's got a new movie coming out. It's uh, called Sorry to Bother You, which he wrote and directed. It's playing now in theaters around. It opens everywhere this Friday, July 13th. I watched it. It's crazy. It's a crazy movie. So, uh, but but in, in a good way. It's very provocative. So what's, what's going on with you? How's it going? It's very hot here. It's very hot here in Los Angeles. And... Uh, as we all know, those of uh, us who are willing to accept a certain amount of uh, truth based in science, that uh, you know, global warming is upon us. Hey, I, you know, don't, don't, don't touch that dial. <laughs> it's not going to be okay, and we're all complicit. We all contributed. Yeah, granted, there are bigger con- contributors. I mean, and some of us. You, you know, do what we can. You know, you bring your own bag to the supermarket. Maybe you buy a hybrid or an electric car. Maybe you stop eating meat so there's not as many farting cows in what used to be the rainforest emitting methane that's uh, deteriorating whatever protections we have. I mean, maybe you do what you can. And obviously, extreme capitalism and industry is at the uh, cutting edge of this. Even with reforms and regulations, we seem to just be plowing ahead into uh, to a convection oven. But it's I just kept thinking about how, like... Everybody involved in modern society, given a few you know, beautifully self-righteous hermits, are, are complicit. And, and there's some element of our, of our need to be engaged with all this crap that uh, supposedly makes life convenient or entertaining, but is very taxing to the environment to make. It's just interesting to me that you know, some part of us thinks like, like we're kids. We're like little kids trying to get away with something. And, and at the core of that is the shame of knowing we fucked up. So when it does happen, 
a lot of people, I, I have to assume, are going to be like, well, I guess we saw this coming. You know, we hedged our bets. We took a chance. We thought maybe it would adapt. Maybe there was some sort of uh, precedent set to, at a time before our knowing of this type of heat, and we just forged on. But uh, no, we're all complicit. You know, you get to a point where, you know, you're doing everything you can to not feel shitty about what feels shitty inside you, whatever it is on a cultural level, on a collective level, on a group level, on an inter- in- individual level. Until it just, you know, until you just come to a fork in the road. And that fork of the road is the fuck it or fix it fork. Either you're going to be like, fuck it. Uh, this is the way I'm going to live the rest of my life. I don't give a fuck. And that type of aggressive, self-aware, on-purpose denial has a broad arc to it that can that can go from just per- paralyzing apathy and just all the way to fucking murder. And then you have the fix it road, much harder. You got to make sacrifices. You got to, you know, you got to change things. You got to help other people change things. So, you know, we are definitely at a fuck it or fix it fork collectively. And the fixing it thing seems to be way out of hand because of the way the structure of the power dynamic is right now. But you can't drift into the into the fuck it. Good times. I know how to party. Do you? Bobcat Goldthwait, the Bobcat, Bobby, yeah, him and I go back. I remember seeing him when he moved away from Boston in his early 20s to become a massive star. He had a garage sale at Stitches Comedy Club, and I was there in in my recollection. So was uh, Emerson student David Cross. But, you know, over the years, Bobby's done many movies. He directed a lot of television. He's directed several episodes of my show. He directed one of my comedy specials. He directed some great movies. He did uh, the last year's documentary about Barry Crimmins, who passed away recently, and it was you know, it was sad. But he's got a new show out. It's on True TV. It's called Bob Goldthwaite's Misfits and Monsters. Premieres this Wednesday, July 11th. And this is me having a chat with Bobby Bobcat. <laughs> Look at that. There we go. Have Bob. you ever seen me without a hat? I haven't, I'm sort of jarred by it. It's jarring. <laughs> it I, I, don't know, I don't know if it's the first time. Could yeah, it possibly be? Could be. Maybe like, it'd been great like if I had like a big head of hair that I, I've just uh, been hiding all these years. <laughs> I think, but no, I think I've seen you with a little more hair. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like I must have seen you without a hat, but I mean, it, you yeah. always shave it down that much? No, I just said, who are we kidding? Oh, really? Yeah. Recently. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think it looks better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I mean, you got the the strong uh, chin growth. Yeah, but, which uh, you know is pulling it. You know, pull, it, it pulls the focus. It pulls the focus. <laughs> Everybody's. I didn't even notice he was bald. I was so, <laughs> so obsessed look, looking with that at his thing chin. on his face. On you know, his chin. I was thinking about this uh, about how you start your show. Like, yeah, <laughs> the guests are always confused. Uh, oh, right. Oh, did we start? <laughs> I, I think I did an hour the other day with Boots Riley, and he's like, are we going? <laughs> what are we going to do? An hour, an hour into it. But it reminded me yeah. of uh, doing Gary Shandling's show. Oh, yeah? Because uh, he was really big on that. Like, he would have the, the tally light, you know, the red light on the cameras off. And then he go, let's just talk about what we're going to do. This uh, was for... Um, Larry Sanders. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. And he go, and then you'll say this, and I'll say that. And and then you start doing it, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and you he, knock the scene out. And you realize it was running? You didn't And he was it. really smart. Yeah. yeah. Either so, that, I think maybe he just didn't want me screaming. Right. 
So we'll just <laughs> you're, the, you're the only guy he did it with. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I hope he did it with other people. He turned. The, he, he actually muted the red light on the camera. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, that's great. And so you know when you're blocking a scene, the cameras are up. Sure. And, and yeah, and then you would go. No, we 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 got that one. I still don't know which one to fucking look at. I'm always looking at the wrong fucking <laughs> camera on talk shows. If it's a three camera oh. shoot, I guarantee you, I'm just looking at the one in front of me. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, and then they're in the. Uh, you know, I used to direct Kimmel, so we're in the booth trying to make sure people aren't looking at the lens. I don't right. know why, but they, you, you don't want them to. They traditionally, but I always thought. I mean, but when they look out to the audience, they should catch the camera. Yeah. Or when you're saying goodbye, yeah. you should like you know, Kimmel knows which one to look at. Yeah. I'm looking somewhere else. I'm waving, <laughs> like you know, you're stage like, left. Like, he, you're, like you're in a float. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I this is really pretentious. I was a yeah. guest on Kimmel, and uh, I had a, a hold up. And because I had directed the show for years, I really didn't do this. It was Pavlovian. I I, yeah. just, uh, I went uh, camera three. Yeah, <laughs> I really did. I called camera. What a what a dick. You, but it wasn't really. It really was. It really was. I like, camera three because you were there for so long. Yeah, and it's just this. Oh it's a weird God. skill. Yeah, there's some cats who like now that I'm I'm shooting more TV like on Glow. There are people you know real actors or, or actors that have been doing it a while. They know exactly where their oh, camera yeah. is. They know exactly where you know. Like for me, like I'm like, which one were we on for that one? Was that my cover? I don't. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. Like I, I've gotten better at like this is your coverage. I'm like okay. Yeah, I just worked. Uh, 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 I'm gonna with Melissa Joan Hart. Yeah, and at one point I go, well, let's swap lenses, let's put a fifty, and she goes, why are we putting a fifty on? Like she knew something was <laughs> right. wrong. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh we, wow. Unfortunately, we had hired a child. <laughs> why am I telling this story? Who was replaced? Uh huh. So I just started getting her coverage. Hey, I had to replace a baby for racial reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't. <laughs> You don't be afraid of replacing but, kids. Uh, no, but I had, uh, on God Bless America, uh, a baby gets shot in the first couple minutes oh, of yeah, the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that movie. It was, yeah. done, <laughs> it was done tastefully. Yeah. It's those uplifting bobcat movies. Yeah, and so <laughs> we go to, to do that scene. I was like, give me an ugly baby. Like, you know, yeah, I wanted yeah. like a crying ugly baby, yeah. like a, a pug-faced right. yeah, child. Right. Yeah. And the kid was cute, but... The dad comes in and he's just like, what are we shooting today? And I go, <laughs> your baby. Thinking that production maybe gave him a heads up what the scene entailed uh -huh. and, and they hadn't. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so, so awkward. Well, what did he say? Uh, basically, we gave him another 500 bucks and everything was cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's very disturbing, but okay. <laughs> okay. That's a, and then the kid wouldn't cry. Covered in blood? Uh, no, no, he because the no, it was the baby wouldn't cry because that's you know uh, why we shoot him. I mean, it's a fantasy and stuff. I mean, I like to dig holes at the beginning. And it's of weird stuff. you can't make a baby cry on purpose. No, you, you know you just gotta hope wait for the around. Best. And I was yeah. taking toys away from it. Oh, so you were kind of yeah. Pushing I, was, it. I was having the dad walk away. Bye. Yeah. And, and then I'd love to tell you I'm a better man than this, but I really got down on my knees and I was going. <laughs> <laughs> in the kid's face. Just to scare it? Yeah, and it would cry as long as I was doing that. Yeah. And as soon as I'd dip out, it would stop crying. Oh, so yeah. I was dangling keys over the camera lens. Yeah. yeah. So the kid was looking up there yeah. and growling. And then, yeah. Well, I did a, a commercial a long time ago where I, I played some sort of coach and uh, you know, they wanted me to get reaction shots from the kids and they were supposed to be sad and I have no children. I don't know. <laughs> You know, so like I got these kids who were like seven or eight years old, and uh, and like one of them, I I said, uh, "You like Harry Potter?" 
And the kid's like, yeah. And I go, he dies in the next movie. And like, and the, like I'm on the lunch break, the crew couldn't even look at me. Like yeah. I literally was like, yeah. no, 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 don't say they're moving away yeah. the food. Yeah. I, yeah. um, yeah, I did that once. They, uh, yeah, but I was just as a bunny rabbit for some wacky photo shoot yeah. in the eighties. And I just thought it'd be funny if the kid was crying and, <laughs> yeah. and people hated me. Cause, uh, yeah. Cause I was terrible. They hate that. But I... Uh, Unless they're immigrant kids. There's about you know 45% of the population has no problem with that. Yeah, about yeah. crying babies. Yeah, being taken away. Oh, my you. goodness. It's uh, it's uh, horrible times. Hey, no shit. So what? Um, we don't have to. We don't have to go into that. Let's talk about grief. I, I haven't spoken yeah. to you since Barry passed, and and I know he was your best friend. And on to lighter subjects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tomorrow is Barry's birthday. Oh. I just found out in uh, Inman Square. They're naming a street. After really? Him. Yeah. I just found out as I was pulled up. Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. That's nice. Yeah. It was. Uh, you it was, were there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was with his uh, wife Helen for the for the last couple days. Yeah, it was. I don't know. I've never, I've never experienced it. I've never. Either. That was the first time you've done. You know, and you, you spent so much time with them with the documentary and with the whole process. Right. Well, what happened was, I was, and also there was a, a friend of his who was a hospice yeah. keeper. He came in, but for the last, I don't know, for days, it was. You know, he was in a. Well, he was in a coma towards the end. Uh huh. Induced or? Mm, uh, not really, because your your liver, uh, when it malfunctions, yeah. uh, these toxins go to your brain, and uh. and it's terrifying. Yeah. And pure Barry fashion too. Like he just, we were before he went in a coma. We were holding him down, and they were they kept giving him harder drugs to yeah. knock him out because yeah. he was just writhing and trying to pull tubes out and yeah but uh you know he he <laughs> he was no novice with drugs yeah, right so we couldn't <laughs> knock him out and and he was fighting us yeah. it was like it was three and a half hours of holding him while oh, he fought God. with us i said it was like landing a marlin it was and and uh it was sad i remember one point I was holding his head and combing his hair, and yeah. I said, "It's it's okay, sweetie." And then I was like, "I I, I mean, it sounds I sound like a ghoul, but you know, this is the." I go, "It's okay, sweetie." And then, and then I said to Helen, "I said he's really gone because he should have punched me right now." <laughs> and I didn't even know why I called him sweetie. I was just holding his head yeah, and combing yeah. his hair. Yeah. But yeah, so he he. Uh, yeah, towards the end, I had been there and I and I wouldn't leave. Helen hadn't eaten in days, and I was trying to get her to eat, and so I went out to get uh, some sandwiches. And yeah. then while I was gone, he woke up and looked at her. He turned his head and looked over at her, and she says, "I love you. Everyone loves you. It's okay. You can go." Yeah. And then I think I don't know what to make of that. It actually. Mm, I realize now watching someone pass away is an honor and I know and and then it made me really change my brain about faith like yeah. I really thought really? yeah cuz I was like you know the fact that he waited for me to leave or whatever you mm. know and I 
I love that idea. Who wants to be a, a third wheel, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it made me feel like there is possibly some rhyme or reason to this madness because uh-huh. I was gone. And I was only gone for a couple minutes yeah. the last couple of days. Yeah, and that's when he went. And he got to have this moment with her. It was pretty wonderful. Right. No, it was. <laughs> I mean, they didn't yeah. want me there, no, you know. Just, right, right. I just, but I did, you know. So she texts me, get back here ASAP. And I come in, and he's gone, and she's crying. And I go, and I have the sandwiches, and I'm like, what I miss? <laughs> I really did. <laughs> she did like a triple take. Did like, she laugh like, at all? She was really like, uh, I think she was like, is is he that stupid? Like, and then she burst out laughing. We were, we were, and as I was saying this, I was even going, "Wow, your two thoughts." I was like, "Wow, you're really saying this." And yeah. two, I was like, "Barry would love it, love it." Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so, uh, and we just, yeah. And, and I think also to go through that. I mean, it seems to me, from what I understand, that you know, it's it's sort of a relief. Oh, for, for the amount of pain he was in. Yeah, and, 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 and there's no coming back, and it's no a long back. process. And it's, and it's uh, someone you love, and you're seeing them in that much pain for, for a long time. Ugh. And then people, it's just really strange. You know, he's not on any machines at this point. Yeah. He's just there to pass away. And, right. And someone comes in, and they're like, have a just blue you know red tape it's like they're asking does barry have stairs at home does barry have and it's well, who like, was this this was like a, some administration person oh because he was in hospice and uh yeah or, and i'm like just read the room you know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> does barry <laughs> he's not going up the stairs <laughs> yeah does barry does barry have a problem with his pogo stick you know <laughs> it was the worst uh it's just so i don't know how where i'm at 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 processing him, yeah. you know what I mean. Like I'm, I, I'm re- lately I have a lot of anger towards Robin's passing, and I mean Robin was the person who I was most in touch with out right. of all my friends, right? You know? Yeah, and you didn't um, see it coming. Well, I mean, he had Lewy body uh, dementia, which yeah. is a disease which is it was misdiagnosed as Parkinson's, right? So. Yeah, for a while I did not see him taking his own life. I, you know, or I told him I said you're not allowed to hurt yourself, and uh-huh. he was like, okay, and and uh, but he didn't process reality in the way because of the disease. Yeah, yeah, and and you know he was doing, you know, he was going to a couple doctors. He was working a program. He 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 was doing all these things, but you know, it's just lately and I'm talking I'm talking to you about it, which right. is weird, but there's a lot of books and documentaries and things. And my thing is is I don't want to participate and it's not out of any other reason than I think just because I there's you know, I remember saying to his son, um, you know, Zach, yeah, I said, you know, Right when he had passed away, I said, "You know, one, the one of the biggest stars in the world died, and on yeah. the same day, your dad died." Right. So that's that's where I'm at. Is just this is a different relationship, and people are going to remember him. However, I like getting it out that he had his problems. But people, yeah. I mean, I have said this. <laughs> you know, you said people will say to me, you know, it's just like, you know, did he, did he ever talk to you about suicide? And I'm like, we're 
we're comedians. <laughs> we talked about suicide for 31 years. You know, sometimes we would talk about other things. You know, like, right. hey, congratulations on the Oscar. Oh, thanks. How would you do it? You know, like, I think a car. I think I'd do it in a car. So I love that guy. I miss him. And then this guy who was my friend and my mentor, and yeah. I made a movie about him. And I'm making a, 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 a which is going to be difficult, but I think it also will help uh i'm doing a narrative film which was the original idea for call me lucky it wasn't a documentary so you're gonna do the whole childhood and uh you know i it's i still i haven't even really broke the story yet but we're doing it how does that end um i think it can end very hopeful i mean it's it's we end at the hearings are you gonna well, I I haven't really figured it out, but I do feel like I mean the documentary "Call Me Lucky" was dealing with the darkest of dark subjects, and I do still think we managed to at the end make it uplifting and hopeful. So I know, but he died. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know what? You're not the first to say this because he and I discussed this, and I was like, oh, I was like, well. I got an ending to the picture. <laughs> oh, no. oh yeah. yeah, it got you. Know, can I say, this is so 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 doing the movie. I'm writing it with Judd Apatow, and he's producing it. For directing. Call Me Lucky, yeah, yeah, to do the the narrative version. Which originally Robin, the idea was for him to to play it, and then Robin said, "We're getting too old. You should make a documentary." And yeah. he gave me the money to start Call Me Lucky. Uh huh. So Barry's like really ill, and he's he. He drags me into the kitchen, and I think he's going to tell me that he loves me or that he's going to tell me to take care of Helen. He's got something important, and he's like, I want Mark Ruffalo to play me in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) And I go, I don't want to talk about the movie right now. And he goes, I want Mark Ruffalo to play me in the movie. I go, I want Chris Pine to play me. (laughs) And he's like, who's Chris Pine? I go, how do you know Mark Ruffalo? (laughs) You want Chris Pine to play you? Yeah, I was joking. And then he goes... I go, how do you know Mark Ruffalo? He goes, oh, I, I really like him when he speaks at fracking demonstrations. <laughs> it's a right, he's a good choice. So did you reach out? I, I, no, I, I gotta, got to write it and all that. Yeah. I know I sound like a ghoul about make cracking jokes about these no, two people. No, you don't. I sound love. like a comedian. What are you going to do? I mean, yeah. it's like, it's how we process grief. Yeah. I think that comedy is is, you know, is helpful in easing the... The, the immediate pain of it. I mean, it does, right. I don't think it does anything to stifle it, or if it, and I don't think it's uh, inappropriate. But I think the funny thing is, is, or maybe it depends what listeners make of what I've just said, but in our hands, it is kind of acceptable. But when a lay person tries to crack a joke around these, yeah. <laughs> it's very horrible. Unless it's a really good joke. <laughs> no, I mean, just, yeah. 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 yeah, I'm not saying yeah. they shouldn't try, but yeah, it, yeah. it can go really poorly. Sure it can. <laughs> But you know, it's one of those. It's a, it's one of those zones where I think a lot of times behavior, odd behavior, you know, st- over the top is is sort of forgiven. You know, when somebody's yeah. been you know leveled by grief. Yeah, who the hell knows what's going to happen? My dad showed up at his father's funeral, just you know, cracking jokes, running right. around, you know, slapping backs. I think he was manic, but but that's another story. No, but I but what I I've witnessed that. Yeah. It just seems like some people act appropriate and yeah. then other people um, lack, act like monsters. Lack of empathy, yeah. Or lack empathy, or there's money involved. Right. Or it's just, yeah, yeah, it's bananas. Yeah. So now, I, is Zinneman writing a piece on you? I believe there's a piece, yes. Now, this show, like, you've been trying to make this for a while, right? Yeah, it was like about seven years ago, I went out 
and people were saying, what kind of show would you make? And I said, I want to do an anthology show. And, and basically, uh, they wouldn't validate my parking, let alone finish the meeting. You know, it just really it, no. Yeah, I went certain places. I pitched an anthology series, yeah. and uh, twice in meetings, people said, "Well, what else would you like to do?" And right, I, and I said, "No, that's it." Um, why? I mean, why is there an aversion to an anthology uh, series because they don't think people can follow it, or that you know that? See, the one thing about you that I know. And I've said I said this to I think I said it to Cinnamon talking about you is is that you know you direct if you direct television it, it is sort of a weird utilitarian job like you know a lot of times you know you just the direct the, the show's already got a format the show's got a look yeah tone, and you just go to, and you go in the shots yeah but I said you're one of those guys that no matter what the situation is your tone runs so deep that you can feel it no matter what. Oh, well, thanks. So, you, you know, so like I would think that, but who am I to assume that executives would understand that? So I would think that an anthology show with your specific tone, especially where it ended up, you know, sort of a, a, a horror thing or a weirdo thing, it would be good, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I truly believe that it's the fact that other anthology series came out, so now they, they, they're comfortable doing that. But I, I do think True was trying to give me a license to do what I do. So. But like, where, how many how many other places did you go? What was the, the journey like? I mean, what, I went this time, uh, Olivia Wingate yeah, went out. my old manager. Yeah, yeah. and she, she's the one that took me out and we went to places and uh, unlike seven years ago, now it was met receptively. There was a couple other places that were interested. So in you, you pitched it seven years ago and then you just bailed on it for a yeah, while? Yeah. Put it on the back burner, directed yeah. some comedy specials, a movie, and some yeah, TV shows. And I'm always writing. Like, I always write more movies and I write the... There's eight episodes of this, but I wrote 11 other outlines, you know? Uh -huh. So I just like to tell stories. So what is the show? Explain it to me. It is... Each week is completely different cast, different uh, genres, Different yeah. genres? Yeah, Ranging yeah. from? It's, I like to take, and I realize this goes all the way back to Shakes. You know, that's a noir film, but I'm making <laughs> fun of comedians. Uh, clowns. Yeah. Right, it's a satire about comics as noir as clowns. Yeah, right. so it's, yeah. Uh, and that same kind of thing goes into this show. Like, there's a episode with David Koechner is like a... He's a used car salesman. It's in the 70s. It's uh -huh. a lot like The Candidate or All the President's Men. There's uh -huh. a cub reporter. They run this guy who does his own TV commercials, one of those guys, as yeah. a president. And he's a werewolf. And uh, he ate a toddler. He's and, a werewolf? Yeah. Uh, and you don't find that out, I'm assuming, till midway? No, right away when they're asking him, is there anything we should know that's going to bite us in the ass in the yeah. campaign? He goes, oh, yeah, animal werewolf, because uh, he's talking about cheating on his wife right. and all these other things. <laughs> and I, oh, and I ate a toddler when I was a werewolf. And it's like, well, no, it's perfect. And, they, <laughs> and so this cover report- a private meeting that they- Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so, and true, you know, I mean, I don't want to ruin the episode for folks, but, you know, it-, it it does break the story, and he's like, I'm a, a werewolf, but I'm an American first. And yeah. he's like, <laughs> yeah. the checkers, uh, Nixon, you know, he's uh -huh. crying. And, oh, that's funny. And America loves this werewolf. So, yeah. So that's, that was a, a 70s, it was a whole bunch of things smashed together. I did do, uh, there's- so like the Twilight Zone? Kind of Tales I would of say the Crypt? More, no, more Twilight Zone, because- yeah. Tales of the Crypt, I, I like that show, but someone would do something evil and then they'd get their comeuppance. Right. So the format's slightly predictable. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, right. On this show- You'll let evil people succeed. 
occasionally. Yeah. I mean, there is like upbeat <laughs> endings where you're going, well, that's, I feel, I feel dirty that that Do you come won. out in a hat and host it? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Cackle. Hi, I'm Bob Cackle. No, I did not. I, I, I kind of think I'm a distraction. I also think a half an hour television, you know, is tight. Not a lot of time. Yeah. So for me to be up there. Oh, really full? You're just doing 22, 23 minute pieces? Yeah, which I like. I, when I went back and looked at Twilight Zone, those, those half an hour ones yeah. are the ones that we tend to remember and stuff. So there's like one Bridget Everett's, uh, 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 that one's more like an MGM musical, but she's a a, a racist mermaid, uh-huh. basically. <laughs> yeah. so I shot that in Wikiwachi, Florida. Did you shoot it like a music, like a mainstream? yeah? There's musical numbers and, oh, yeah? and did you saturate that color? <laughs> yeah, that's the whole goal. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Oh, great. I did. Uh, yeah. Tom Kenny uh, worked on some of them. Doing there's one episode that's almost all animated, and he oh came really? In. Yeah, but there's. So the first, we've got the '70s one. We've got the musical one with Neptune. We've got an all, almost all animated one. So that's yeah, three. But there's an one that's there's another one that has an animated character. It's like Roger Rabbit and Cape Fear, <laughs> and yeah. and it's very violent. And uh-huh. Seth Green plays a guy who uh, is the voice of a very popular beloved cartoon bear. Uh-huh. And the bear comes to life because he hates the way he makes him sound. And he wants to kill him. He's like, well, why are you going to make me stutter? That's something funny for kids? <laughs> I will send you to hell. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, wow. It, That's great. <laughs> that reminds me of the, like, when I realized that Chris Collins, remember Chris Collins? Sure. Made a lot of his money doing voiceovers. I said, boy, parents have no idea <laughs> what is behind <laughs> that who's, cute little character. Who's entertaining their kids, yeah. <laughs> that to me was revelatory. Yeah, that it's guy like, was dark. Yeah, it's like Satan yeah. is, is entertaining your children. Well, uh, it's funny because I did the episode of the Bubba the Bear episode, yeah. and I kind of thought it was influenced by Tom Kenny. He's been my best friend since I was six. Yeah. Those folks, and he does SpongeBob and a lot of other characters' voices. It wasn't until I finished the episode that my daughter, who is the costume designer on the show, she was like, you didn't get that that's you? This character <laughs> that almost kills you? Yeah. That you can't escape? You wrote it? You don't get it? <laughs> yeah, I really didn't. I was like, oh, it's, yeah, it is me, Oh, that's wild. It? That's, uh, it's exciting when you don't do that stuff on purpose. Oh, no. And, and often when I'm writing these things, I write them really fast and I don't yeah. think about what, even the movies, like I'll, later on I'll watch them and, I, and it'll be pointed out to me. It's like, that's you. I was like, oh, I didn't, uh, yeah. I really didn't. It seems like it's a comedic answer to Black Mirror in a way. Yeah, I, I hope. I mean, I, I like Black Mirror. I had to stop watching them so I wouldn't be influenced um, I'm sure it has it helped get it going. Right. I should probably send mind. them a fruit basket. Sure. No, thanks for helping the green light. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's comedic. Most of the episodes, there is some sort of subtext and there's, hopefully it's funny and there's always- Sounds great. Oh, thanks, man. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, it's fun rolling it out and starting to show it to people for the first time. The, I was at a film festival when we showed an episode and one thing that I didn't count on it was nice that people liked it and they're laughing, but people got caught up in they were worried about the characters. Like there was tension in the room, uh huh. Which I'm, which I understand. So that they, that means the characters were grounded in some human. sort of reality, even though that's a right. giant animated bear trying to kill. But part of me is like, oh wow, this is cool. Another part of me is like, I just talked to Seth Green. He's fine. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and also like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? It's a cartoon. What you, it's a TV show. What's going on in this yeah. world? It's uh, so not real. Not real. So yeah, that's the uh, uh, Misfits and Monsters. I did eight of them, and I'm going to work on the Barry narrative and um, finishing up Ron Funches special that I just shot and. Uh, did a pilot for Comedy Central for some friends of mine. Wow. Yeah. Busy as fuck. Yeah. Good, I, man. I truly did think, I didn't know, well, you're probably the same way. What? What, what would I be doing at this age? Yeah, I, uh, like, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't know. I'm just happy to be making a living. Yeah, there's that, but I, I, you know, I walked away from everything and away. I stopped, auditioning and yeah. stopped doing things because I really did like being behind the camera. Yeah. But when I started making, telling stories, I did it with a crew from Craigslist and, you know, and I didn't do it because I wanted to be reinvented. I just did it because I love telling stories. Yeah. And now at this point to be uh, getting paid and getting a chance to tell more stories it's yeah. pretty awesome. No, it's great. I, you know, I, I don't know where I thought I would be. I, I didn't, I, I didn't think it would be good. Right. Yeah. But today, this morning, it hit me. It's like, you know what? I paid bills for 25 it's like years. It's you got to work. That's the thing. No matter what you think your standards are, at a certain point, you got to survive. Yeah. And there's something to be said for that. And I you think. have a talent, and you know that you do it well. You know, if it's not working out the way you want it to work out, what, that's just the way it is. <laughs> Boo-hoo. Yeah. Well, it's great to see you, man. Yeah, it's great to see you. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks. All right, that was Bobcat Goldthwait talking about, among other things, Misfits and Monsters. Premieres this Wednesday, July 11th on True TV. Can you dig it? Can you? Boots Riley does a lot of things. And what, what he's here for today is to talk about his new film that he wrote and directed, Sorry to Bother You. And we'll talk a bit about his music and other stuff and common friends in the Bay Area. And he's going to, you know, uh, teach me some things. <laughs> apparently needed to learn but uh, it was great seeing him I hadn't seen him in a long time I don't know him but I did interview him once before years ago and uh, it was nice to have him over uh, we had a a fine chat so this is me and uh, Boots Riley so where are you living now? Uh, same place Oakland, California you do? so you just, you're just coming down here to promote the movie? yeah I, I, I've been go here a lot you know even just doing posts right sure yeah uh but yeah promoting the movie um putting last minute i was up all night last night uh yeah putting last minute tweaks to the mix of the soundtrack really yeah so you're kind of tired Uh, a little (laughs) well right this second i'm not but uh, it'll happen if I stop talking for too long I might yeah. fall asleep I had I, you know who came over the other day I, I think uh, you know Nato Green yeah 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 he was over he was down here for a couple of days and he stopped by and we smoked he's in the cigar. movie for a second I know I saw that and Kamal mm-hmm. yep Kamal's in there too yep and and Kamal that, that was like the patch up of a quiet feud not a feud but between just, you uh, and Kamal yeah, yeah I mean we were friends it wasn't a feud but uh, How far back do you he go? Was, he's an Oakland guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's Chicago and came to the Bay Area because he thought nobody else was funny and so he could do uh-huh. well there. Oh, is and, that why? No, I'm just, <laughs> I, th- I think he did say something that means that. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he could take over the Bay Area. Uh-huh. But yeah, he had uh, walked out on a, um, 
I did this. I did this weird uh, show like a few years ago that yeah. was like a theater sort of experimental thing called the Coos Shadow Box with multiple stages. And and one, I have a s- song called "You Are Not a Riot," and one of the lyrics say, uh, "You are a sitcom based on a torture chamber." So in this crazy show, when I say that lyric, all the lights go off in the place, and then this other stage lights up. Yeah, and it's set up like. A sitcom, yeah, with the torture chamber, right, and it goes, bow, 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 and then people do this not funny, supposedly funny thing with the laugh track, yeah, with the torture chamber. Right. It's not supposed to be funny, right? You're not supposed to, sure. You know, nobody's gonna laugh, right? It's a, it's a, uh, a, a, a big, broad satirical punch, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, I recruited Kamal to play to be one of the people in that and it's hard right for a comedian one of the being to the do. tortured people yeah uh, yeah in this case he was one of the torturers uh-huh. and uh, i think he didn't get the fact that it wasn't supposed suppo- to be funny. like like no matter what joke you tell yeah it's not going to be funny like people are just yeah. going to be like what the hell is this so he thought and that's you, okay he thought you set him up no i mean i i had told him what it was yeah but he really didn't uh i he didn't like that and so uh in between shows i got a text from him saying i can't do this and he split and he split and i understand why somebody would do that like i it's a, he thinks it's a sinking ship and uh-huh. he doesn't want to be but in that. the middle of a live show in the middle of a live show he's right here now listening to this mad that i'm bringing it up He'll be all right. Um, but he is a good friend. Yeah, you know, I, I so. saw his one-person show in Oakland. That that was a that was a great show. He's doing well. I haven't talked to him in a while. But now, what happened with that live show? Because it seems like that that seems to be part of uh, the the building blocks of what brought your mind to this movie. Well, what happened with that live show is it took me six months to make happen, and it was fun, and I want to see it happen again. But I don't want to be involved in it. The production of it? Yeah. Like, you know, like I, in that thing, I, you know, was part of helping build the sets and right. you know, full theater it's just experience. That wasn't, yeah. But no, that wasn't the building blocks of this. I started out in film school. You did? Like, what, what in Oakland? And I started before that. I started out in theater, but yeah. And, well, where and, did you come from originally? You originally from Oakland? Uh, yeah. I, I was born in Chicago, moved to Detroit. Sounds like uh, a song already. When I was one, yeah. And then moved to. <laughs> Oakland the first time when I was six. Oh, so you were really young. Yeah, so I've been there for a while. And what was the scene like? What were your folks doing? Uh, my my parents were radical organizers. Really? Yeah, and uh, my father came up in the civil rights movement. He actually, when he was 12, he joined the NAACP, and by virtue of that, became the founding member of the Durham chapter of the NAACP. In the Durham, North, Carolina? North Carolina? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, at uh, twelve or he at waited. twelve, really? Yeah, huh. and uh, he uh, and and uh, he tried to get his church to support the civil rights movement. Yeah, and they said that that was blasphemous for him to be in church, suggesting that they get involved in worldly uh, things. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of people, you know, have the assumption that the black church was very involved in the civil rights movement, but actually they weren't. That's why they needed something like the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference to be like, we are the pe- black yeah. church, people in the black church that are down for the civil rights. Movement. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he joined CORE and then he came to the Bay Area with CORE. How old um, was he then? 
uh, he, he had graduated high school by then. Oh, um, is he still around? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he makes uh, he's in in the movie. He's an extra in the movie. Is he? So so, so he comes he, to the he, Bay Area. Matter of fact, he uh, was part of the San Francisco State Strike in 1968 that created uh, ethnic studies, and that's where uh, he met Danny Glover. And oh, so they go way back. Friend, yeah. Oh, wow. And 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 your mom comes and, from where? Uh, my my mother died a few years ago. Sorry. And uh, she she's from New York. So and, they were both radical community organizers. Yeah. Um, yes. Or I guess. Uh, it, it, what it, what is the word radical? And, is it post radical versus and, just and, community? And so you know, my father's uh, politics have changed from that. So. You know, I know that he probably would want me to put that caveat in there, but uh, he, yeah, I mean, he was involved in um, revolutionary organization called the Progressive Labor Party, mm-hmm. and uh, was that a socialist organization? Or you yeah, yeah, in uh, Oakland. No, uh, it was everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in Chicago with it, and Detroit. He was a full time organizer in Detroit, but he stayed out of the the Panther scene. Uh, yeah, he wasn't in. He wasn't in the Panthers. He uh, he helped, he was part of Kathleen Cleaver's campaign at one point. But yeah, no. Um, so you have a real history of, uh, of 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 radical engagement. You grew mm-hmm. up with it. Yeah. By the time I was eight, yeah. my parents were burnt out of that scene. Like, oh yeah. So, um, but what, because you, I knew about you know you get you're an organizer or, yeah. yeah you. And he became a lawyer. Oh, he did? Yeah. Uh, like a civil rights lawyer? Uh, he does that as well, and that's what he's known for. But he initially was a criminal defense lawyer. He thought of that as being just as important. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and so he was a public defender. Now, do you feel like when when they when you say burnt out, do you feel like, uh, have you talked to him about you know the, the arc of the 60s? I mean, what, did they feel like that the there was a different way to fight it or that the things had gotten too chaotic or, or what? I think, you know, what happens in many organizations and I've seen that through organizations that I'm in is they implode because they're humans, right? <laughs> yeah. right. And, and, uh, and not only that, not, not that it's all destined to implode, but it's, there's destined, dest, they're destined to have conflict yeah, and heavy conflict. And when you have heavy conflict, and um, things are at a lull. Yeah. Then it ends up being all these splits, and then you end up splitting into these tiny organizations. Right. You know, I think in the 60s, uh, what the left became was mainly focused around spectacle. Yeah. Whereas, like, say, 40 years before that, it was attached directly to class struggle. And to labor. Yeah. Yeah. which, Which meant that you are telling people in the working class that you have leverage power right that there that it's not just about raising your voice and saying i don't like this that you know you are you you have your your powerpoint is in your the economic system yeah. and yeah not just in you know because right now when we say you have power in numbers we imagine that there's a hundred thousand people in the street carrying signs and that's what does it someone gets shamed into changing policy yeah or something like that and you know, the reason that they were called demonstrations in the 20s and 30s is because they were like, these are 50,000 people that can shut down your industry. Yeah. And right. they did. There yeah. were strikes all over. Right. Um, to build the unions. 
not just to build the unions, um, but yes, they they were to. I mean, the building the unions was was a means to an end because yeah. these this was at a time when the leaders of those labor struggles were openly radical and calling for social change, and that that these strikes were not only raising wages, but but building a power base by right. which to sure uh, demand policy changes. There were. Uh, Strikes going on all over the country. There was in Alabama, uh, Utah, Colorado, um, Montana. These places were called hotbeds of communist activity by J. Edgar Hoover. These the places that are red states were those people's grandparents were red. Right. Labor or, or radical right? labor organizers and part of the labor but movement. radical, not not even just part. I mean, not when we think of the labor movement now, yeah. it's pretty liberal. Right. Um, these were folks who were in that time. They were openly calling for the, uh, cha- getting rid of the capitalist system. Right. And 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 um, and so. Uh, not only that, then in the Midwest, you had people occupying factories on the West Coast. The longshoremen were uh, battling for their union and fighting tanks. And in the midst of all of that, you had and you, you had this thing called the bonus march, which was unrelated to that to a certain extent. But it was it was happening at the same time and added to the where, where uh, World War One veterans. Yeah marched many of them armed to the white house to demand their bonus pay yeah and got met by tanks by general macarthur in that whole milieu that was happening that's where we got the the new deal not by electing the right person right right by by protest and not just by protest by because they were because people were withholding labor Mm mm-hmm for to to make uh to to get wage changes but but also showing that they could cause damage to the bottom line right right which i think even the most conservative person understands that this system that that the people who have power in this system are the people with money right right yeah um so we're the people that give them the money right <laughs> exactly know? and not just through our buying power but through what, what when we work so after the the twenties and thirties, um, you had a period where uh, radicals in the U.S. wanted the U.S. to go to war against Hitler, mm-hmm. and there was the United Front against fascism. And part of that whole deal was that radicals in the U.S. would go underground, mm-hmm. like, and not fight against the U.S. while they were fighting Hitler. Right, and that backfired because then twelve years later. You had the McCarthy era where they were like, look at all these people that are hiding who they are. Whereas 12, 15 years before, they wouldn't have been able to say that. People would be like, yes, dummy, I know they're a communist because they told me and they've been working with me and we've been right, trying to doing fight stuff. fascism. Yeah. So the McCarthy era combined with uh, atrocities that were found out about Stalin and, and really the CPUSA's non-response to it yeah. um, was... Uh, what broke the biggest radical organization up in the U.S. and made all these little groups that became the the new left of the 1960s. And yeah. the new left of the 1960s response was basically like being open. We are radicals. We are revolutionaries. Um, and th- these were like directly related to the previous organizations. Yeah. Um, however, they focused on students. Yeah. Uh, for the first time, 
in history, uh, you heard the students are the revolution. It, it was not historically accurate. Mm-hmm. It was not what, how any other revolution had been been made up to that point was just by focusing on students. And so they moved people to the cities and away from those areas that that then got left alone. The Midwest. And it, not just the Midwest, but, you know, places like Montana and right. Alabama. Sure. You know, and they were, they, were, they were purged from unions, but that fight was given up. Right. So now you have something where students are focused on and everything is about getting people into the streets. Yeah. Right. Right. And and even to the extent that sometimes when they're getting people into the streets are about like, we're going to bust some windows. Even that's just spectacle. Right. It's not, you know, for the however people say, oh, it causes some damage, does not cause anywhere near as much damage to the bottom line as withholding labor for right, a day right, right. or two or right. whatever, you know. And and so um, spectacle became the way that we did things. And so radicals started hiding. They started hiding in academia, started mm-hmm. hiding in art, mm-hmm. and of which I'm one of them. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the spectacle, it seems that, that you know, if I... You know, from you know, I'm no no historian or anything, but I, I've been watching stuff lately on the Vietnam War. That the actual spectacle, though it didn't affect the bottom line, once it provoked violence in the streets and enough tension for uh, people to become aware of of what was being fought, it, it was it had there was some success there. Hmm. That's where I disagree with. Uh, I, I I've heard that line, and you're you're following uh, you you're saying the thing that a lot of very smart people have said. Yeah. Uh, but I disagree with that. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, obviously, I'm, again, essentializing. So, yeah. yes. Sure. There are victories won in many right. different kinds of ways. Right. Um, but I think that what we do when we do that is we're, when we say, look, let your voice be heard. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's what you can do. We're, we kind of are saying that's all you can do. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And then we are. We are we are reinforcing this idea that power works uh, with a conscience, you know, mm-hmm. that power somehow um, concedes to humanity. Yeah. And, 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 and that there's some sort of democracy happening when people get out in the street. Um, and, and I think it's important for people to get out in the street to let each other know we're doing what the issues are right and things like that but that's not the thing that you know i've been involved in 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 calling people out to things where you know thousands of people come out and then some of the people that are new are like okay what now and then the organizers kind of look at each other like (laughs) i don't i don't know (laughs) we did this thing (laughs) you know yeah and and it's because the left has been hiding from uh, going away from class struggle for the past 50, 60 years. In, ha- in hiding in academia and arts, you say? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, yeah, these jobs, when you do them, you end up wanting to give yourself an excuse for only doing that. Because mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to, if you're a professor to write a book and teach these classes and stuff like that. So you end up, and if you're an artist, yeah. You know, you end up doing stuff that inspires people to become artists and academics. Right. So you're you're saying on some level, you know, even even your involvement. But but it seems like that there's a a muted uh, result that, you know, that that if the if they're not in the streets and working with the people and and they're just writing books or, or inspiring 
students or, or, or raising awareness through music and I'm or not paintings. Saying, I'm not saying that, that people aren't also in the streets, but I'm saying what, yeah, what, 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 what we've focused on yeah. are these, you, you know, so a, a lot of what has been now comes to be thought of as what the left is about are these things that are really inspired by academic circles and the need to be artists. So we we focus on linguistics and we focus on, you know, um, terminology that, and and it's because it's all we have right now. You're not saying that we shouldn't talk about those things. Right. But. Well, what Um, do you think is the, like, I mean, because I know that in in your music career that the, the sort of, push against capitalism is always a theme all the way through. Mm. Yeah, I mean I think that that's the and same source the of many of the problems. Yeah, I think that, that and, and it's not just because I've picked something and I see it and I, I think that um, what, what anthropologists and sociologists will even say is that culture uh, comes from the way that we survive. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's it does it's not just something that's genetic or whatever. so the things that we do the way we say things the way we it come it, it it's it's built upon a base yeah. and a base of how we survive so fishing villages create fishing songs yeah. right <laughs> yeah. like it's not like you're like wow I, I really don't like fishing songs yeah and I really wish that this village would start singing agricultural songs you're right. You can teach them agricultural songs, and they may, they may like the tune. Yeah, but the fishing songs are going to f- just feel better because they're connected to the way that they live, right. and they're going to keep coming back. You, you know, and so the way our life is organized, the yeah. way that we survive, is based on exploitation. And there are things that grow out of that, mm-hmm. and there, there, you know, racism has a utility. You know, I can't scientifically say I have test groups that can say that racism would not exist uh, outside of capitalism. But I know that right now what we're dealing with, what we're trying to fight against has a reason to exist yeah. and, and has a reason that it's promoted. Right. You know, and and so. And what's that reason? OK. At this point. So. um one way to talk about it is let's talk about cop shows. Yeah. Cop shows are, I believe they have a function and their function is to tell the viewers and to put the idea out there um, that poverty is created by the bad choices of the impoverished. Mm-hmm. That, you know, these, uh, th- that, that these crimes that they're identifying um, are being done because people haven't figured out the right path. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that it doesn't come because we live in an economic system that necessitates poverty, that that must have a certain amount. You know, capitalism must actually have a certain amount of unemployed people in order to survive. They need that that army of unemployed people in order to threaten your job. You know, places like the Wall Street Journal, they will openly uh, worry when the unemployment rate starts going down too low uh-huh. because that means you know uh, there's a direct correlation between wages going up when, when when unemployment goes down because there's less risk of you losing your job and people ask for more you know if there was complete employment 
nobody could fire you right because they couldn't replace you right and i you know and and so your wages you wouldn't even need a union struggle right right and and uh so stocks go down when wages go up anyway cop shows um, explain it as having nothing to do with the economic system. Yeah. Having e- that poverty is basically a choice. Right. And, and it comes from this cultures that are insufficient. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Bad parenting, bad family, hmm. bad uh, neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just someone that's really erratic and, yeah. ha- you know, and, and these are the racist, these, they use these racist tropes to say to to not just prove something about people of color and black folks, yeah. but to prove that the system is okay. And you, white guy, that's making nineteen thousand dollars a year, one, you're actually middle class. That's what they're saying, right? At nineteen thousand, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then two, you're not like them. Your poverty is you. you you're smart. You know, right? Right. You, uh, you've got credit. This is not who you should be aligning with. Yeah. And uh, your, if you do see yourself as impoverished, it's temporary because there's no way that you are making bad decisions. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when you start noticing this stuff, I mean, having the you you brought up in in a house where these issues are constantly around. And in it's, the it's funny because actually in my household, they, they weren't, I think, uh, mm-hmm. the one reason that if, if you look at folks with radical parents, yeah. they're not usually involved in stuff later on. They, they kind of go the other way, not the other way, they're not Alex P. Keaton, but, you know, they aren't really involved a lot because I think one danger that happens is. And I have to check myself with my kids yeah. because one danger that happens is you are so entrenched in trying to change the way things are that you want to get a head start with your kids and uh-huh. you start telling them all these things about how the world is. And, right. And, and those ideas become yours and right. not theirs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, um, and so they try to find their own way. Maybe they're not going to join. So they an push organization. back, and and to the extent that maybe they don't push back, but they yeah, just look yeah. for something else. Right, you know? right, right. Um, did you do that? Well, the reason that I didn't is because that wasn't done to me. Right, like I didn't. But you were I know, aware. I know when I I was aware that when I uh, went to the summer project to help out the farm workers who were organizing a. a anti-racist farm workers union that with your my dad? father yeah. no i went By on yourself. my own yeah i mean not on my own but with yeah that, you know and i knew that he wouldn't be mad at me right you know i knew you know but i didn't really know i learned what the politics of all that was f- from other people like he never like sat me down and said this is the way the world is right matter of fact i remember red dawn me and my friends really the wanted movie? to go see red dawn yeah, yeah. And that was a perfect time for him to tell me what, how bullshit, what bullshit it was. Yeah. And, um, you know, he had some sort of light thing about it being, uh, you know, gearing, you know, getting people to accept militarism. Yeah. But that was the, the, the most that he ever said. I remember that. And it, and it really just, 
I was like, whatever. The, you know, we got to be prepared for when the Russians attack. You know, right. yeah, you bought it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the the decision to to get into? You say you were in theater early on. A uh, bit? Yeah, yeah. My grandmother on my mother's side. Yeah. Uh, ran the Oakland Ensemble Theater oh, yeah. uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was around that. I saw it. I remember her doing like Flash Gordon and like things that, a couple things that I thought were cool. The other stuff was like, uh, you know. Like what? Like more? Just people talking to each other. Oh, like more arty stuff or more? I don't even know because you're at that age. There's a couch on stage. Yeah, yeah. And there's somebody with a hat (laughs) (laughs) and and they're talking to each other. You're like, okay. um, But you like the spectacle. Like you're probably the bigger bigger shows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that seemed like, oh, there's carrying a ray gun or yeah, something yeah. like that. But it's know? exciting, right, to see the stage and you kind of and that was inspiring to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I yeah. mean, um of course TV was the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like you did yeah. you could see that yeah, they're acting and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think later on people being creative around you and just it being a thing that's okay to do. Yeah. Where did that start for you in high school? Hmm. Yeah, I uh, I wrote a play. Yeah, um, which is probably also where I started rapping first. in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wrote they the, the the teacher wanted to do West Side Story. Yeah, and so we made a our version of it called East Side Story. Uh huh. And uh, it had raps in it that I had to write. Yeah, and that was my first time. And people didn't boo. They, so, so, so you thought maybe so, I got something? Yeah, like I could do something. But you know, it feels like your 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 style, you know, is a, a pretty. It, it's honest and intelligent, but it's, it's straightforward. Like I don't feel like when I listen to your music that you're affecting anything. Like you're not being affected. Mm. You know, you, know, you don't have putting a, on an affectation, right? You don't have a character per se. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we all do. Well, of course, but I mean, you're not doing it on purpose. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, you're right that that um, you deal I, with intellectual things, yes. you know, and you make them understandable. There, there's, there's part of you, not unlike the the conversation we just had, that feels a need to educate. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, I like hearing myself talk, especially with these earphones. <laughs> I was, I sound I was, nice I was trying to make it sound a little better than yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, no. Yeah. No. I'm really interested in those things and interested in connecting to people and interested in people engaging with the world which brings me back to my movie which the main character based on someone i know kind of is uh really you know it's it's one of the the few movies with people of color where the you know one of the main motivations that um the main character has yeah. is, is has to do with figuring out why he's here and what and yeah. and wanting to engage and the existential question the, yeah. the movie's called sorry to bother you his name is lakeith right lakeith stanfield Stanf- who i love very he's he's a very funny guy, really great actor i do i do i think that like in the show atlanta uh, i don't know him but uh, I like the work he does on that show. Yeah. And I like the work that he did in Get Out. Like, I think he's a great actor, but he's also got a very unique timing to him. Yeah, he's, uh, that's what I love about him is because um, he's not worried so much about what he looks like on the outside. Uh-huh. He's just worried about feeling the thing that he's supposed to be feeling. That comes up with him 
doing things that are a little bit strange because he's not thinking about that. And it works a lot better because you don't have somebody raising their eyebrow and saying, I'm confused right now. You know, like, yeah, uh, he's got his own timing. He's in his own, uh, yeah, his own time zone, it seems. Yeah. Which makes you, yeah, it makes it more believable. It's engaging too. It reminded me, like, I don't know. Did you ever see Putney Swope? You know, uh, ever since I that? entered, ever <laughs> yeah. since I got into this, you know, I went through the Sundance Labs and. Oh, you did? Yeah. Uh, How does that work? Uh, well, you you apply with your script. Uh huh. And I don't know even how they choose or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so because I applied to... once and didn't get in, then I applied With again. the same movie? Yeah. You know, I'd made a few changes. Uh-huh. Um, with this script. Sorry to bother yeah. you. Okay. And then I, then I got in. And then what do you and, do there? And there are people that are masters of their craft that sit around and talk to you one-on-one for like a couple hours at a time about your script that they've read and they talk to each other and kind of who are the people uh let's see so we had uh walter mosley uh joan tewksbury who wrote nashville so so you're sitting with these people uh you know with your script they've read it you're in and and what and how long is the lab you guys it's just a matter of workshops so there's two labs i i went through both the 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 screenwriters lab yeah and the and the uh, director's lab, right? And so the the writer's lab, which you do first, and then you apply to the director's because you've lab. never done either, written uh, a uh, written a screenplay. This that was became my f- a, yeah, 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 or exactly. directed, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had never written a screenplay, period, mm-hmm. because, whether it became a movie or not, right? Um, and I'd done uh, I co-directed a, a music video, and I went to film school, um, and had been involved in all kinds of different art projects. Where'd you go to film school? San Francisco State. And um, so was that like uh, for four years, two years? Uh, I I quit probably after two years because we got a record deal. And San Francisco, going to film school at San Francisco State is not like going to film school in LA or New York. Yeah. Like I didn't know anybody that had made their film. At the time, there was one person that a couple years later came out of there, made a film called Dry Long. So... But you right. didn't know people that were making their films, whereas and and the people that I knew were getting jobs at ILM, and that was not something that What's I that? wanted to do. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic. Oh right, oh the Lucas. Yeah. So, but so they, it was definitely an interest to you, uh, to you. But even yeah, before it, music or alongside music, I, it was just exactly. It was like I don't know. It's all just one big creative mess, and I'm always doing the thing I can do. You do, like, yeah. You, you do a lot of stuff with your own groups and with collaborations and yeah. with ensembles. I mean, you seem to be a guy that just likes to keep creating. Yeah, it's it's fun, and it's uh, it, it's a way to talk to people and kind of cut through style. I mean, to to put put a style on what you're saying and how you're saying it to people. I mean. You know, I like to think that it's just for, you know, some lofty reasons. But, you know, I grew up addicted to TV and addicted to movies and. But it seems to me I'm like when part I, of it, like, but like they're, they're like I was saying before that it's not even a teacher thing or an educator thing is that not unlike a comedian. And I think that the new movie, this movie, sorry to bother you, is it is a comedy. 
Yeah, but it, it, it's it's many things. I right. don't know. I don't know how you classify. Yeah, it. I don't either. Actually, but but there are definitely comedic elements. Oh, just yeah. because of the tone. I want people to be laughing. Yeah, I don't know if that means it's. Kind well, of- my thing is is that not unlike a, a comedian, which is my trade, you seek to understand for yourself and share that understanding with others. Mm. Yes, and and the, the the way you see the world and the struggles that we all face that comes from your point of view, the way you understand them is what you're sharing with other people. Yes, and 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 that comes through in the music, and it comes through in this and, movie. And I would say this other thing that I have decided about comedy yeah. is that um, you know a, a lot of times analysis uh-huh. analysis needs to be about heightening and showing contradiction uh-huh right you're like this is how this works right you know? right you and, and and how something works are things pushing against each other tension and yeah and that contradiction is a lot like irony yeah and i think i you're the comedian so you would tell me i think irony is very connected to comedy it can be yeah yeah sure and i think also though but like in my mind in terms of looking at this movie you remember that movie they live Yes, John Carpenter. I love that movie. I felt some of that in this movie. Okay. In your movie. Yeah. That, you know, that you're walking by things where you're sort of like, oh, did you see what they just, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. make note of that. Yeah. Well, I wanted I wanted it to be chock full of detail. Right. And and I wanted it to, I, I wanted it to, uh, and this is going to be sound, I realize because I've said it a few times and as it's coming out, it sounds pretentious, but I wanted it to feel like a novel in a certain way. Sure. Not in the novel in the sense of why did this person make this movie like a sure. novel, but in the sense that, you know, there's all of these details that really build up and, and, and you know, uh, like if you, if it, it, it's a lot of my favorite writers, they won't just say he went to the store. Who are like, they? Uh just off the top, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, yeah. Tony Morrison, uh, Salman Rushdie, yeah. uh, Michael Andachi. Oh, yeah, Michael Andachi. Um, yeah. Folks like that uh, have this really syrupy details in, in, in what they're writing. And, yeah, a lot of and, layers. Yeah, so so like they won't just say, I, he went to the store. They'll say, he sauntered slowly to the store holding his a, a cup of yeah, coffee. right. And that cup had 20 years before been used by his grandmother to murder <laughs> yeah, yeah. his grandfather. Right. You know, and yeah. and yeah, a producer of a movie, when you try to do the film version of that, it's like, why do you have all that stuff? Show them at the store. Yeah. You know? Right. And yeah. But you wanted to put some of those layers in. Yeah. And, and because one, people watch movies over and over now. I mean, yeah. if they're good enough. Sure. And uh, two... I, yeah, I I wanted to, to figure out a way to not not simulate real life, but to have things that felt like real life, keep people on their toes and not right. not yeah. knowing when to go to the bathroom. Right, because it does float in a zone that's not. It, it doesn't feel like it's today, but it could be next week. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of where culture is at. Yeah. And, uh, and the thing is, I, I wrote it and I finished it the first time in 2012 and we put it out on McSweeney's in 2014. But the script? Yeah. Oh, really? You published it? We published it as its own paperback book, but but packaged with the quarterly. Oh, with the, so are you, are you in, in with them, with Eggers and that crew? Cause yeah, I ran into him on the street yeah. when I had the script and was going to put it. I was had 
throwing my hands in the air and was going to just put it out on the internet. And I was like, well, I want it to be as tight as possible. Could you read it and give me some notes? Um, and he read it and then... Did he give you notes? Did Dave Eggers give you some notes? His note was an email with one line saying, this is one of the best unproduced screenplays I've ever read. Leave it as is. I want to put it out. And um, so it was first. It was published as a script before it was even considered into even in any yeah, process to make. Yeah, it I mean, and that it his, you know, encouragement made me actually get my second wind and you know join SF Film as a filmmaker in residence. Then uh, I, I showed up at the Sundance uh, Film Festival with a bag full of these books and handing them out on the on the. When uh, was that? That was 2015. And the, and the SF uh, Film is a, what is that? Uh, so S, it used to be SF Film Society. Uh -huh. They're just SF Film. So and Filmmaker in Residence thing is where they basically give you office space in kind of a collective work thing. So this has been a multi-year thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You like it, but you're still doing music, you know, alongside well, I did, of it. I, I had originally made a, 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 an album right after I wrote the, the screenplay that was trying to get buzz for the screenplay Which album? it was called sorry to bother you oh yeah in and, 2012 yeah yeah and uh that didn't work and <laughs> and, and so Did now you, it's going to be confusing because we made a whole new soundtrack for the movie which uh is coming out on interscope and um uh, you know they okay. want to call it sorry to bother you as well the that's soundtrack a, oh that's good Okay. Yeah. So, well, let's walk through this one more time, or, or or pick up where we left off. So now that we got some backstory, so you get to Sundance Labs, you're you're hanging out with these veterans who are mm -hmm. uh, who are you're know, walking you through, or at least uh, uh, engaging you in, well, in process. I, I'll say the best thing that I got because yeah. Um. Well, well first yeah. the Putney Swope thing. Yeah. People were like, "Oh, you gotta see Putney Swope." Yeah. And I didn't want to because if it really had some similarities to it i liked what i was doing and i didn't want to i didn't want to change it because right of this thing that right. probably not many other people saw yeah and then i see it and i just don't you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah so you didn't you already you'd already been on your way so with i, this I thing. plan i plan to see it but oh you I haven't watched it watched it yet <laughs> and, and uh that's good and uh but there's this guy kareem Inus who was there and um he's a brazilian filmmaker based in berlin mm-hmm uh, kind of, uh, and and he, uh, you know, we had our meeting. He was like, "Hey, um, I don't really know what to tell you, but I, I don't know how to tell somebody about how to write their script. Yeah, you know, it's your thing. Yeah, um, and I'm really just here because they invite me to this resort in the summertime. How can I say no? Right, and <laughs> it's honest. <laughs> and he said, "But what I will tell you yeah. is." I love your main character. I love Cassius. I, yeah. I, I, I want to protect him. Yeah. I want to hang out with him. Right. On a, you know, buy him a beer and just hug him. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> and that's how I know it's bullshit because I hate everybody. <laughs> and, and so we sat and we had like a four hour conversation about people in our lives at, at different decision making points and you know, talking about what was real and and really I ended up realizing that, you know, the reason why he came off that way is because at the time I was having him just get bounced around like a pinball. Right. And he didn't and have a, a voice. Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't taking ownership. He wasn't 
he wasn't the cause of anything. Oh, so so the shift in that character that came out of that conversation would be him owning his actual yeah, him, his him uh, having agency, right? And 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 owning the the promotion. Yeah, that yeah. which is a big transition in the movie. Yeah, and it actually that one thing changed so much of my movie. I had to it had ripples throughout everything. Right, right, and that wasn't there initially. No, he just kind of like not in he, the McSweeney's version. I don't think. Interesting. So the the big shift was like, uh, yeah, what's wrong with this? Yeah. Look at look how I'm living. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Huh. That's interesting, man. So, so in in this move, in terms of building this movie, because you know we can't we can't give away the end, uh, things that happen at the end because yeah. it gets and cool. even in the middle, like there are certain things that you know, like I if I had my druthers, I would like have the trailer just be all the cast sitting there saying, "Look at us, <laughs> we're good actors." Yeah, why would we pick something shitty? <laughs> yeah. Go see this movie. We're not going to tell you anything about it. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that you can. The weird thing about the movie, I don't think you can spoil the movie. But yeah. The only way you could spoil the movie is just by revealing the insanity of the end. Uh, but that doesn't spoil the story. It just spoils this wonderful. Well, yeah, but I think so. The experience effect. I want people yeah. to have yeah. isn't just about what happens at the end. It's no, it's about, no, no. But it, it's it is it can yeah. be ruined to a certain extent because just by seeing I those think things. What, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think what what I want people to have uh-huh. throughout the movie is this experience of discovery that, that, that like visually try to take people through the emotional journey that Cassius is going through, which is a lot like hopefully like when you discover new ideas that because there's a few places throughout the movie besides. Yeah you know, the last parts where his his view of the world and his relationship to the world changes. Right. And we visually feel that. And I think that's part of what people are reacting to is that it's not just we don't just see him going through this and then we empathize with him or we agree or disagree. It's, you know, we're forced to go through that with him because of yeah. the, the vision. And so if you're looking for it, if somebody's like, hey, you got to see this, you're going to see this part when you see the, you know, yeah. this, the green shoe, yeah. you know, um, it's gonna watch out. Yeah, 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 you know. No, no, I, I, it's weird because like it, it, it was, it's completely uh, jarring you know what we're not talking about mm-hmm. but but it doesn't it's not it's not relative to the human story that you're telling mm-hmm. you know i i don't know why you made the choices that you did in that last part of the movie well i will say this um that all the choices i made cuz it's not only there where the movie is strange or does things that you're not supposed to do in the movie you know like um I, I found, you know, I set out to write a movie that took place in the world of telemarketing and that there was going to be a struggle that he had to choose sides on. That's all I knew. When I'm making stuff, whether it's music or whatever, I'm always checking myself for for whether I'm doing it based on what I know to be real or based on what other artists have made. You know, like a love song, for instance, you can there's parameters that uh, people think make up a love song. Like, yeah. Do you love me? How much are you going to love me? How yeah. long are you going to love me? Why'd you leave me? Yeah, all those sorts of, th- and which are valid concerns, but you you have to stay within these parameters for it to be a love song. But your version of 
loving someone. Maybe I love you. I'm attracted to you. I even going to stay with you forever. But can you not laugh like that in front of my friends? Because it's embarrassing. Right. And um, but if you were to put that in there, it would seem trite or like, you know, because it's not. A real love. It's not what, within the. Con- it's not. It's not what, predictable. what other. It's not what other artists have done. Right. Right. And, Why'd you add the laughing part? Yeah. Yeah. And right. and and uh, and but it may be more real, and it may make yeah. you more passionate about what you're doing. Yeah. Um. So I'm always checking myself for those things, and with this, you know, as I had bigger ideas that that were were the result of me trying to decide what I really thought about certain situations. I had choices of how to bring them in there, which was I could have someone say these ideas, which is boring mm-hmm. and, you know, is done so much or whatever. And then, two, I could have like some sort of hyper realistic situation that then you, you gain empathy for the person because of the trials and tribulations. So I didn't do that. I found it more effective to bend reality. Yeah. Oh, and, I see. Yeah. And, 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 to point out, I, I, it, it, I, I did all of these things. I mean, it points out the parallels in our, in our actual reality. And I did all these things not just to put things in there, but because I, I found them to have. And, and with each of these things, I really had to ask myself, am I really going to do this? I didn't know that I was going to make a movie that was fantastical or right. absurd. It got that way. Yeah as i as i wrote it it, it i you know sure so, uh, um and then when you what, now what did you learn from the directing workshop you know going into that, oh, that, a that lot. enabled you so, to have confidence so now by the time i'm going to the directing workshop i i'm pretty sure i'm gonna make this movie right i mean it wasn't sure but i decided it was sure yeah and so you learn things a lot differently when when you have a way to apply them like instead of like seeing you know i'd go to these lectures that maybe in in film school would be there i'd take notes and yeah they're not going anywhere but right. if i go to a lecture by uh 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 judith weston about acting for directors mm-hmm. and we're talking about how you know how different things affect actors i'm i have something real to think about yeah and Got anyway, it. and you're doing a movie, so you're like, I can apply this. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you're thinking about the different scenes. Yeah. So in this case, w- the directors' labs, uh, they they you they help you cast it. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a casting director, and you have actors that are in movies for real. Yeah, you have actors that are are, are film actors. That so the, the yeah, at the lab, you actually make the movie. You go through all those points of production. Yeah, you and- do like five scenes. Oh, so you were able to cast a film while you were at the lab? No, I mean, this was a whole different... Oh, it's this, just learning how to do it. Yeah, this we didn't use any of it. We, right. we made, you know, we just kind of made just demo tapes. Right. You learning, know what I'm saying? Right. I get it, yeah. And uh, you get a crew of eight people, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, and, and, and you get to work things out. And then you have advisors like uh, Rodrigo Prieto, Bradford Young, uh, Glenn Close. So I learned, one... You need to be overprepared like I was, but yeah. you also need to be able to throw it away and use that overpreparedness as just your knowledge of what's happening. Yeah. And and be able to flow with um the the an actor might have an idea for blocking that 
really is cool that may then change where you're going to put the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, all those yeah. sorts of things. But the thing I'm, you know, like pacing and how to get the pacing that I need, how to how to talk, that just gave me all the, yeah. the practice. Right. Things that would have been you know would have really affected my movie yeah you and, and you and you uh, like ultimately you, you know in, a, in applying all these things you learn you know you got a great cast together you got great voices together you got cross in there yeah you got forrest whitaker in there and yeah. then you've got Patton oswald Patton, and uh and then you've got rosario da- dawson yeah those are just the voices yeah and you got danny glover on uh, on camera right yeah and you got the lakeith and he's great and that tessa thompson lakeith tessa Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Terry Stephen Cruz. Yun, uh, Terry Crews, yeah. uh, Omari Hardwick, Army Hammer. Yeah, he's yeah he's he's disturbing. In the, yeah, yeah that's some great shit. And that's in the yeah. We it moved. was so I was having so much fun. I mean, we did sixty one locations in twenty eight days. So, but did you, did you shoot around here in Oakland and all in Oakland? Yeah, because that's where right. I could get shit for free. But <laughs> people plus, knew you. Yeah, that's where your friends. Yeah, are. but yeah. but also really plus. Uh, that's where I could figure out really cool looking. And you knew the you knew the places, yeah. yeah. But like the the story, as you said, is an existential story. What is the meaning of life? What do we do with our life? What does life mean? And you know, you know, from just a description, it's about a guy who needs a job. He's got a girlfriend. He's living at his uncle's, and you know, and and it comes down to like I don't know what I got to do. And someone says, "Well, go get a just at least just go get a telemarketing job." Mm-hmm. And that's where it starts. And this is a common predicament yeah. for people. Just People go get a telemarketing just go get job. a fucking telemarketing yeah. job. And then it kind of escalates from there. The advancing, you know, how do you win? How do you, you know, figure out how to sell? How do you put on your white voice? How do you, you, you know, move to the next level, the mythical next level yeah. that you get a hint of? And then you start to see this character start to really, you know, like want, find drive, yeah. find ambition. Yeah. Succeed yeah, I mean, on those terms. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's cool about the actors is that they all like, put so much into it. I mean obviously being a first time director there are probably great directors that could take non-actors and make sure. magic happen right I don't think I was that person and uh, but and I knew that about myself and you know I've been a music producer for 20 something years so I've done a similar process where there's five people in a room that all know more about music than I do but I might find i might not like the music that they would produce on right. their own and i have the vision um but and you're so, a good collaborator exactly and and also you know figuring out what can be pulled from each person but how what i'm saying is that these actors and the the whole you know a production designer a costume designer a dp uh-huh. uh, they all like put so much into it and we're, we're down to do it like all the actors did did it for scale yeah and passed up some really great things yeah, and, and to you do got, it and you got some good you got a lot of good stuff at him but also the, the visually it's pretty stunning and pretty wild and yeah you know there's a lot going on in every frame and they, they, that that whole element the recurring element of the live workspace what was that called again worry free worry free like that reminded me of like you know like that um those great satire movies like, uh, you know, even like sort of a little RoboCop mm, and, and, and mm-hmm. right, right. And, and a little I didn't think about it at the time, but yes. No, no. Yeah. I'm just saying that that sort of element of that. Yeah. Of that kind of Makes like. Sense, yeah. And then the uh, the other thing I was thinking of was the uh, uh, 
What was that Mike Judge movie? The oh, Idiocracy. Idiocracy. Yeah, well, we got President Camacho. Yeah, you got him in there. Yeah, but uh, but like I like that tone, like because it's, it's it's over the top, but it's like it's close enough to real life to where you're like, I get it. You know yeah. what I mean? That's not that far, yeah. right? But in terms of like what you've been working for or working towards or working with ideologically your entire life, uh, creatively. You know about about capitalism, about uh, you know ambition, about how it corrupts, about class. It seems like you were able to really you, you know engage all of that stuff in this movie. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I had people argue with me about taking making it simpler. You know, yeah, not you know pick the one thing, yeah, and stretch it out for eighty minutes. Right, and then throw in the. What would the one thing be? Just his know. story? It just. Yeah. I don't know. I I had all sorts of suggestions. But you wanted to load it up. I wanted, yeah, I wanted it to be interesting. I wanted it to, you know, like I wanted to. I I, I think it's right that you can put too, you know, and from from doing music. I know there's a way that you can put too much shit on a track, and then there's a way to put that same amount but organize it right so that it's okay. And ends up becoming this count, this polyrhythmic thing where all these things are countering each other and working. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes you have some really experience, some really great, you know, uh, South American, you know, band doing the great. And then sometimes you have like jam band and nobody wants to listen. And, uh, Except for you those know, people, yeah, I'm just messing band with the jam band. I, I thought like there was a uh, like there was a lot of like very exciting visual stuff in there, and and, and, I, and a lot of great performances, and and uh, and it was a it was a definitely an engaging, uh, fun movie to watch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's. I think that's that's the thing is that um, a lot of art that attempts to talk about whatever. Yeah the the way the world is even though all art is talking about the way the world is but uh but attempts to do it in a different way than you know what's what's happening or talk about talk about it from a different political perspective uh-huh. than, than most things um gets bogged down in um sort of this depressing thing and uh-huh. um Oh, you and, mean when you politically uh uh like where it's about movies. anger or something yeah. like that and 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 I'm my art has never been about that partly because I don't well I don't think it's been about that um you know like even our song five million ways to kill a CEO yeah the way you kill a CEO is you put a twenty dollar bill in the barrel of a gun and they try to suck it out you know yeah things like that right but uh or you know whatever it's it's funny yeah I think yeah and uh but it's because I have an optimism that's related to having an analysis of how things could change. Not not necessarily saying we're in the position to do that, but I can see a path. Right. And so that makes my art uh, hopeful. so I, hopeful and, and to the point where sometimes I get accused by folks that think they're more uh, left than me or whatever. Yeah of not really oh why is this album as political as i heard it was oh, gonna be yeah, you know worse or whatever it's the worst <laughs> i think it is very political but yeah. i think you know i think also i want people to dance yeah also i want people to laugh and i think that those things are all connected to like how you know like i 
the the organizers that I first came up around in the eighties. Yeah. Um, some of them were like, uh, you know, these folks from Britain who had came, who had gotten politicized during the miners' strike, and their whole thing was, you know, you can't, you know, get somebody to join a strike if you can't have a pint with them, you know, yeah, or you know, like old, you know, Jewish commies that had been in the CPUSA that told everything they said was in a joke, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right, and. Because it's all like part of like pointing things out and and it's part of like being alive. And the reason that I'm talking about this stuff is because I like people. Yeah. Right. And so but I think there's an aesthetic that has like kind of come out of the 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 punk sort of side of things, which is more, I would say, not necessarily by the followers of it, but by some of the practitioners of it, really more about the aesthetic than about actually changing things. Uh-huh. And so that aesthetic becomes more important and and then Oh, it's interesting cuz you kind of play on that in the movie with the pro, with the radicals who are yeah. you know uh fighting against worry free. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, and and it's it's yeah, I think it's it's well in the movie everybody sells out. But, that's right. <laughs> Well, that that scene, the performance art scene's rough, dude. Right and funny, <laughs> yeah. but but that's that that's the aesthetic over content thing. Yeah, in yeah. a way, right? There are things in that, and I I think that that scene is open, and that yeah, definitely that scene contains some of my critique of myself as well. Uh-huh. You know, as well, an artist. Oh, well, I thought you did a great job, man, and it's good to see you again. Man, good seeing you. I, I'll see you again in like eighteen more years. No, I would when. Let's when did you press record? What? Oh, oh, fuck. Oh, didn't. <laughs> when did I press record? Yeah, I didn't ever see you do that. And <laughs> yeah. I just assumed because we were in the conversation that it, <laughs> I was hoping it was, it was recording. <laughs> I got it all, man. Yeah. <laughs> I got it all. Good to see you, buddy. Good seeing you. All right, that was Boots. Riley, Sorry to Bother You, which he wrote and directed, is now playing in select theaters. It opens everywhere this Friday, July 13th. I have not prepared any guitar, but I will do some anyway. 